Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode five. Today I've got Sean Cheng, principal at Vayner Capital. Sean Cheng is one of the leading early stage VCs here in New York City. He is a proxy for the man behind Vayner Capital, which is Gary Vaynerchuk, the prolific entrepreneur, author, investor, internet celebrity, and also the star of the upcoming TV series. Uh, can you call it a TV series if it's only available on internet TV? I think yes. Uh, it's called Planet of the Apps. It's a venture with Apple. It's actually Apple's first original TV programming. And uh, it's kind of like Shark Tank or The Voice maybe is a better um, analogy for app developers. And so they compete and there's like judges slash mentors. Um, it's like Will I Am, Gwyneth Paltrow, and uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. And so Sean works closely with Gary and the rest of the team over at Vayner to really identify what are the big companies uh, of the future and to make investments nice and early to get them off the ground and uh, ultimately fulfill their potential. Sean was kind enough to come by and chat with me on topics around VC, startups, early stage investing. We got into some cool tech stuff around augmented reality. Uh, Sean, you know, has the benefit of just being exposed to so much amazing tech and so many amazing companies. He spends his days just meeting all of these different companies doing all of these amazing things. And uh, I'm jealous that, that he just knows so much about so many different types of businesses. As a bit of housekeeping, I have a request for anyone listening, which is simply to tap the subscribe button in the podcast app of your choice so that you get alerted to new episodes when they come out. I have some other amazing guests coming up throughout the summer. And uh, to make sure you get those latest episodes, make sure to subscribe. All right. So without further ado, I give you Sean Chang of Vayner Capital. So welcome to the podcast in our little studio here. Sorry again for uh, uh basically making you watch me set it up. <laughs> um, but is this live studio audience of 150 people a normal reoccurring thing? I Yeah, I normally we have, uh, this is where I'll put in the laugh track. Everyone, hey. Right, <laughs> right. this is where I'll put in the applause and the laugh track. What if, it, oh my God, what if you did like a sitcom style podcast where there's a laugh track, like watching Friends or something? Oh, nice, yeah. And every other time you'd be sponsored by Mentos. Yes, of course. Yeah, like the podcast actually is sponsored by Mentos, and that was it. Um, <laughs> so it'll be called the Fresh Maker. Yeah, it, <laughs> we're changing the name. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it is. What times are it now? Like it's you know four thirty on a Thursday, and you know obviously immediately prior to this, we were both like doing our normal work, and presumably afterwards still might have a couple of things to to knock off for the end of the day. Um, and so I, I know it's a challenge for me to like figure out, to figure out like when and how to devote oneself to the podcasting arts or just content marketing in general. Um, so I'm curious to get your take on that, especially since you work with the great Gary Vee, 
who seems to be sort of like the you know champion of of content. Uh, so like, how does that work? He is is he doing that and also like running the day to day of the company or companies? Yes, absolutely. So Gary is prolific. I've never seen anybody work as efficiently or as hard as I have uh, at at Vayner just as a whole. It's like having a front row seat or a courtside seat to watching a, a Kobe or LeBron or Steph Curry basically come up. Uh, I've seen him take things that may take a lot longer with some folks and his ability to cut through all of the crap and distill it down to binary decisions is incredible. And a lot of that is is scaled by surrounding himself with lethal killers. Honestly, the people around him are incredible. Um, and so is there like super fast decision making happening? Absolutely. Batching. The foresight that which he has with respect to getting to the heart of the things that he's doing, he takes five minute meetings. Like very rarely have I ever met anybody that, that does a five. Does he cut people off and sort of be like, get to the point? No, he's never rude about it. But he's able to see through people's BS and oftentimes sort of cut tries, to the core. Yeah, tries to get, get to the key thing that will make an equitable exchange or, or move things forward. And so balancing between all these, these different uh, hula hoops, uh, he does an incredible job of. He, he switches gears, up gear, down gear, uh, incredibly fast. And he, he does it with a lot of empathy and grace. Wow. Something I've been trying to get better at is faster decision making. I find myself ending a lot of meetings with like, great, let's think about this and loop back or like, okay, like let's try to make a decision by the end of the week or something like that. And trying to transition more to a like, okay, based on the information we have right now, let's do plan B next, you know, and it's, it's hard. Speaking of decisions, you are a venture capitalist, uh, VCs, the cool kids call it. A lot of decision-making in that job. Um, one could argue it is a job which is mostly about decisions. I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, whereas in other lines of work, you make decisions and then you like do whatever the decision is. Whereas in your case, it's actually, I would imagine most of the work goes into making the decision. And so instead of that being the beginning of the process, the deliverable is basically the decision. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah. Venture capital as a whole, if you, if you take a look at it, it is a extremely nebulous industry. There are a ton of different structures and frameworks and archetypes that you can use to, to figure out how to do it better. But I, I would say... Most of venture capital is, is pretty non-linear. And so every day being completely different, to some people that sounds like a dream, to others that sounds like a living nightmare because most of what your brain does is, you know, it goes on autopilot. People like to know that they're on the same route home, on the same subway, uh, with the options of the same five restaurants around them. And so volatility, uh, and, and also a lot of variety, switching gears uh, for a VC has to be second nature. So if you are talking to um, a blockchain company and then a healthcare startup, 
or you're talking to a service provider that does accounting or um, financing or insurance while also talking to maybe another venture capitalist that's further down upstream or downstream, being able to switch gears very quickly and go into your Batman utility belt and pull out something that helps to string those things together is uh, is really challenging. And so it, it's hard sometimes to measure whether or not the sum of all those efforts is moving you in the right direction. So is most of your day meetings and again like with adjacent meetings that might have absolutely nothing to do with one another yeah i would say maybe 50 50 i mean depending upon what season of the year it is Hmm. um, we really try to make a conscious effort around how to have fewer meetings and be as intentional as possible Um, so half of it is reading and writing and distilling down into the most important aspects of what we want um, and then the other half is, is the relational aspect. So when you think about, um, you know, a lot of folks sort of read about, uh, the companies that get funded, those are the ones that get written about. And so what percentage, like ballpark, are we talking about of the companies that you actually meet with, talk to, get to know, build those relationships with, do you guys actually invest in? And do you think that that percentage is you know, more or less than maybe the average firm? We are absolutely above average with respect to the amount of qualified and unqualified deal flow is what we call it. I would say, you know, on on a given year, if you look at uh, all sources of where deals come from, in totality, we're we're talking about anywhere between five and 6,000 that we see over the course of a year and a half or so. So maybe, you know, to be fair, we're talking closer to around 4,000, 5,000-ish. Of that, maybe less than 1%. And so we're making a lot of quick decisions based off of our strategy and the things that we've had experience in the past. 1% still sounds like a lot of companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that it, it definitely depends on where, uh, where we're focusing on at the time, but uh, it's, it's definitely pretty small, a small margin. Yeah, it's interesting. When I talk to other startup founders that have raised money, um, it always seems to be the case that we're sort of playing that game from the other side. So for instance, if you want one investor, you have to talk to 100 investors, which roughly maps to your 1% conversion. Uh, (laughs) and, And so I found that to be true. I think a lot of other folks do. But again, when you read sort of the tech media, you know, there's obviously a heavy survivor bias for the folks that that are successful, and um, I hear very early stage founders a lot of times talk about sort of like you know okay step one we're going to build like a splash page and step two we're going to you know I'm going to find a technical co-founder and step three we're going to raise some money and then step four we're going to and I'm like whoa whoa back up to number three again like that's not just like a you know oh, I'm going to set the goal for this week and and go do it that's like a whole process and a lot of times it's not one in a hundred, it's zero in a thousand. Or, I mean, you could, you could talk to a million investors and still never get anyone to invest. Um, so when you're talking to folks, do you try to map in your head, like, are you sort of pre-screening and saying like, okay, like from what I can tell, at least this company is eligible to be the sort of company that we might invest in, as opposed to sort of having a conversation with someone 
that they don't know it, but there's basically no chance that you would ever invest. I would say the beautiful and the most frightening aspect of startups with respect to investors is that it's truly about value creation. There are thousands of books, thousands of medium posts that you can read to say so many medium posts. A so many medium posts. A plus B equals C and all automatic magically you're gonna be able to jump through all the hoops right. that make you into an entrepreneur. Right. When instead of checking off all those boxes, it's really about whether or not the team and the and and the folks that believe in in the building of whatever product or service actually are creating value that the world wants. And so when we do meet with a founder or we speak with a founder, you're absolutely right. We are making thousands of calculations on the spot. Where did it come from? Uh, how quickly did it come in? Uh, how much information was there? What do we know from their LinkedIn, their angel list, their uh, crunch base? Had they raised before in the past? Uh, how quickly is this company growing? Have I heard about this company involuntarily from someone else in the past? Right. Is it a hot industry? Is it a cold industry? Is it an industry that is gaining traction or previously had traction in the past? Are these founders the types of founders that have built this type of company in the past? Like all of those things, like you're building a qualitative and quantitative analysis of whether or not this should lead to the next five minute conversation. So all of the stuff you're talking about and this is just the nerd in me, but sort of sounds like a great area for something like machine learning, you know, like, because essentially what we're talking about is a bunch of inputs. And right now you have human curators and sort of human brain algorithms that, of course, with years of experience are probably more and more efficient and more and more accurate at sort of analyzing those data points, being able to recognize trends. And I'm sure it's not, again, there's not a step one, two, three, it's much more nuanced than that. But somehow the right combination of those things. So maybe they're a little weak in one area, but it's a really hot market. Or you're not totally sold on the idea, but they had a very successful startup five years ago or whatever. Like, and, and somehow you come to some conclusion. And then, of course, that gets informed with more significant data points like actually meeting them and, and you know, doing your diligence. Do you think that eventually this is the sort of thing that could be at least assisted by by machines? It's already happening. So uh, assisted aspects of venture investing are, are, are definitely already happening, both for the founder as well as for the VC. I would say the latter part of the market, if you are a late stage investor and you have stripes up the wazoo in terms of your pedigree and your ability to be one of the 50 lawyers and or founders and or VCs involved, oftentimes it's a pissing match with who's willing to pay a higher valuation price. Right. Uh, and there's there's other psychological aspects with FOMO and even like geographic location. And so I actually think sitting at the end of the hyper opposite end of the early stage, well, that'll be the area where it gets uh, completely automated last. The reason being I, I say that is because it is so relationally driven. It is opaque. You're dealing with smaller and smaller data sets, and it is the, a lot more the bleeding edge. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so venture as a whole, if we take an even further step back, like will venture exist in 5 or 15 or, or 20 years? Right now, we're looking at early signals of, of it saying no. Like the, the way that if we look at the history of venture capital and 
you know, Fairchild Semiconductor or like the Traitorous Eight, and you go into the the diaspora of Intel and HP and all these other guys that essentially paved the way for Google, Facebook, Amazon, Fanga, right? Like the Frightful Five. We're talking about a world where it, it was a handful of folks that really were king makers. And now, as of even just these past couple months, we see uh, a, a, a huge increase in micro VCs the year that I joined, 2.4x, sub $20 million funds. We see a double digit increase in the amount of, of use of debt saying, hey, founders are like, I don't, I don't necessarily need to take venture. I, I, I'll take some short-form debt and pay a higher, a higher right. interest. We're seeing initial coin offerings off of blockchain. ICOs actually wow. power uh, twice, almost twice the amount of, of fundings for companies in the last 12 months really? than venture capital. That's, it's not in the future. That's crazy. So, so, so there's a lot of options. All as a VC? I don't know if worry, yeah, absolutely. Like <laughs> worry, but I don't know if that's the if that's the primary distillation of what I would be feeling. I, I think more of what I'm feeling is a fascination, right? Because some of the people that are helping make that a reality are venture capitalists themselves, right? right. Because it gives them an edge. So we're we're you know small investors in, in product hunt. And if you read the writing on the wall, product hunt. Ryan and that team are amazing. They they arguably have captured the hearts and minds of a lot of founders and a lot of venture capitalists. And if you use all of that information as predictive data plugged into the AngelList system, right. where do we go? Right. Can you understand what kings will be made before, or queens, right? And right? Will be made prior to them happening? Well, there's the data part, and it's also just sort of you know, creating a marketplace um, where the, the lines of communication are much more open and democratized than sort of a, you need a warm intro through someone that yes. you actually know. And yeah. I remember when I was first looking to raise money, we didn't know any investors. We didn't know anything about anything. And um, it was very early days of Angelus. And I literally just, you know, would open up like a hundred tabs at a time where I would command click on anyone in New York that listed themselves an investor, then just write them a message, you know, like, yeah, you use a shotgun. I was just cold calling. I think actually you can't do that on AngelList now unless you're connected or something. But at the time I was just spamming people mm -hmm. and a few people met with me. None of those people invested. Some of them weren't even really investors, just like set investor on their profile. Um, but that is at least how I started my network, you know? Um, but even a couple of years prior to that, before AngelList existed, how would I, I have even started that search? Maybe right. on LinkedIn or something? I don't know. Like, right. um, and so you can see the sort of trajectory, you know, where we are along that sort of you know, spectrum that potentially ends in something totally democratized and or data-driven, I guess, where um, those matches are being made you know, much more efficiently and quickly and easily. Everybody's looking for an edge. I mean, so Naval from Angelist in building this marketplace, he knows very well that he gets the cream of the crop first. Right. Building marketplaces like Circle Up for consumer goods. The people that get that data first have a little bit of a leg up. Yeah, of course. I mean, all of them are, are and, and so with blockchain, like for them, that if they also help to power and to build CoinList, right. and you've got uh, token marketplace where you've got a full-on calendar and uh, the brave the brave guys who who bu built a blockchain browser raised thirty million dollars in thirty seconds, all through blockchain. Blockchain. That was an initial coin offering, the the, the fastest and most I, I think the largest one of all time as of four days ago. 
That's wild. I had not heard about that. Yeah, and 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 how these things will be used. I mean, blockchain is a whole other uh, yeah, topic in whole... and of itself. But what's fascinating about it is that you know we are in 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 the height of crypto crypto uh, exuberance right now. And you know we're going to meet a Mount Grox moment for for Ethereum, which is like the, the the program that a lot of these ICOs are being done off of, where there's going to be a security flaw. Same same thing, same way that we saw Bitcoin spike to twelve hundred or nine hundred back in twenty thirteen, and then drop down to you know dozens of dollars or or even less than that. Right. And now. Bitcoin, as of like you know, thirty minutes ago, I think is up to twenty six hundred dollars per coin, and then Ethereum spiked from a couple of dollars. Now it's two hundred and sixty dollars. Do you personally use Bitcoin? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I definitely. I this year and last year, there have been more and more marketplaces that embrace it. Uh, I think San Francisco, even municipals, are starting to use it to to pay for tickets and Bitcoin and stuff is so like that, interesting so. because I admittedly. I read a lot about it. I hear a lot about it. You know, I, I, I try to educate myself, and yet it's it remains opaque. And maybe it's because I'm a visual person as a designer, um, but I consider myself fairly, you know, savvy that I could sort of represent this in my mind. But it, it just still is like this weird gray cloud. Like I can sort of carry a conversation about it, but then I'm like, I feel like if if someone really poked <laughs> at me right now, I would be like, yeah, I actually have no idea what's happening with blockchain. Um, despite my my purposeful efforts to become educated. Um, and so, you know, are, are you bullish on, on the blockchain in general? Have you guys made investments there? Like... Um, it, it sounds like you believe there's some much wider implications to that technology than maybe originally intended. I, I'm definitely bullish on it, but I'm like you. I, I haven't spent enough time in it. I, I think Gary saw some of the writing on the wall probably three, four years ago. In our portfolio, you know, he, he did invest in in Coinbase, which is one of the primary wallets. Well, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I would say the, the, for for the folks that are considering putting a little bit of money in there, they should definitely do their research. And the the best resource that I've come across over the last week was uh, Chris Dixon, who's who's another investor. Uh, essentially, pulled together all, all the best. Uh, hey, just to catch up, kind of uh, posts over nice. the last week on nice. his Medium. So go check it out. Um, but he he's he. I would highly recommend reading through those before you, you put, you know, a few thousand bucks in there and, and try to ride that wave because absolutely for all the unsolicited inbound fr- of, you know, friends that are saying, Hey, have you heard about this blockchain thing? Should I put some money in there? Um, I would say 98% of the people that are putting money into it right now, it's, it's, totally around speculation. So you're not starting a, a Bitcoin savings account yet. I, sh- I should mention <laughs> you recently had a daughter. Congratulations. Yes, I did. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <sighs> Amazing. Uh, five weeks ago. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I'm She's so impressed. Alive and happy. You are awake. Uh, and, and Just barely. <laughs> I, I'm actually a cyborg. I, I was sent here by Sean. Um, um, remotely controlled. Well, congratulations. Seriously. It's, thank you. It's amazing. Um, 
But in other words, you're not opening her college fund in Bitcoin right now. <laughs> like you're 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 still waiting and seeing. Hey, that's a great startup idea. Five twenty nines for for kids. You know, a college fund for kids built off of blockchain and instead of uh, another another toy that they may not play with. Yeah. Uh, how about a couple bucks for college where it'll, maybe it'll be quadruple by the time she goes and to college. And it's totally untraceable. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, like suddenly their college is paid for and it's yeah. like, you know, who opened this account? Be like, I, I don't know. Santa it's just, lost, you know, distributed, yeah. uh, <laughs> distributed ledger. I, I couldn't tell you. you know? Yes, but had had a little girl. All of a sudden I'm paying attention to products and services that I previously had Isn't not it paid amazing? To. Aren't you all of a sudden like, you know, like there's so, all the stuff is just mostly bad. Like there's a lot of bad you know, stuff. There, yeah. um, well, so five weeks. So are you guys like it's the weather's starting to get nice? Are you like taking some strolls? Are you like, you know, leaving the apartment, walking a block? Or are you still like fairly homebound? Mostly cocoonified. We're, yeah, we're still mostly at home unless it's a doctor appointment or, you know, so, something that you just can't can't miss. Yes. Um, yes. Well, it's nice you're heading into the nice weather um, because, for instance, just the stroller. One of the first things I noticed um, is, is so w- when you have a very young baby, they face you in the stroller. But when they get a little older, they face out so that they can see the world, which is much more interesting than, than seeing you. Uh, and, but then you can't see them anymore. So like when I push my daughter, who's now t- turning two, in the stroller, like I'm just looking at the back of a stroller. I have no idea what she's doing. And there's a million things like that. Uh, but yes, I, I, I am powerless really to do anything about it unless I want to start a stroller company. But for you, all of a sudden, you could you know, start finding some more baby gear related, uh, some more parenting startups. And, well, well, it's funny that you say that. There, so you know, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm of the thought of fewer, better things. I'm, I'm trying to buy fewer, better things. And that includes includes a lot of the uh, the wares that get mm. sold to parents. Yeah. And it's so, one of those mindsets where people just spend crazily and, yeah. and you know, I want the best and and you also mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you don't know anything. So right. you just sort of, you know, acquire things. And, and so I, I mean I went through that process a lot with uh, with some of the most recent goods that we bought. So one was a baby monitor, for example. Yep. That I, I think this is related to a little bit of, you know, how how do we uh, capture as much information as possible and distill it down to the insights and the and the things that would help your child. So one of the things that we bought, we bought uh, a Nanit. Uh, Nanit is a is a computer vision powered baby monitor. These guys are incredible. They, they, they what essentially does that mean exactly yeah they do a supercut of your child sleeping. So w- what that means is. Did your child sleep well? How many times did he or she wake up? Um, how deeply did they they sleep? All off of computer is vision. Is it giving so, you th- those stats, or is it like giving yes. you literally like a, a best of reel in the morning, or both? Both, yeah, stats and insight. And so, very interesting. So we have like the Nest Cam, yeah, you know, formerly Drop Cam, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you can skip, for instance, to where there's motion. Um, and, and same sort of analysis, I would imagine, that's happening. Um, but it stops short of giving you any sort of readout or stats. I had a friend working there uh, who no longer works there, but, but he was working on stuff where it would be able to detect if your baby rolled over or, or like, you know, very mm-hmm. specific sorts of things, which is yeah. crazy. 
Yeah, there's know? there's other great products too, like Owlet and yeah. Angel. Uh, not Pad. I forgot. Do you worry at all about like live feed of your baby transmitting through the cloud and all that sort of? <sighs> Stuff. In general, are you someone that worries about internet privacy or you're just sort of like, fuck it? A little bit. I would say, you know, security and privacy are, are definitely top of mind for everyone. Now that everything's in the cloud and easily accessible, I think, you know, we we are now in a world that we should try to live as uh, wholesomely as possible. Yeah. And, you're and sort of with, at? with the understanding that anyone that lives with duality as a reality in their life potentially will be exposed correct i mean look at uber this week yeah you're you're firing to you know every week 20 20 (laughs) offices you know 20 20 employees and you know some of them may or may not have questionable practices but you know to be very honest don't don't we all in some way slander and or murder someone in our minds all the time yeah there there are always small (laughs) that that's that's one way to put it uh (laughs) But right, there's there's lots of small things. If you really try to live a life where you would be a hundred percent okay with everyone on earth seeing and hearing everything you do, every conversation you have, everything you write, um, it's really hard. Even Absolutely. if you're a good, law-abiding, kind, mm-hmm. normal person, yeah. when you really really start breaking it down it's very very hard to have a yeah. single representation of oneself like a one size fits all there's a there's a concept called going transparent mm. that uh that's that's talked about kind of like going clear yeah in uh, scientology you got it it's uh it's in a the most recent there's a book called the circle it came out with the movie with tom hanks and, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i don't Granger. know what it's about yeah but uh, going transparent is uh, is is talking exactly about this. And Dana Boyd, a, you know, a famous author who's been talking about going, you know, living in public, uh, has has talked a lot about w- what does it mean for us and for society. And this is the age old uh, debate and and thought around moot versus zuck, right? Like, is it better for the world for us to be more open and connected, and for all of us? Uh, to be held accountable for what we say and 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 what we do, uh, or do we truly get our most authentic selves when we are anonymous? Right. So if you are a 4chan user, or a Reddit user, or a right. kick, kick you messenger truly user, speak your mind. Yeah. Does that bring some level of liberation? What I don't know what the answer is, but you definitely have seen a a sunsetting of a decent amount of anonymous social networks yeah like secret or yik yak yeah or, or whatever like in in the past few uh few years right and that was like a there was a big like craze around that especially yeah. in the vz community yeah did absolutely. you sort of buy into that at the time did you think there was merit to those sorts of services um, no I, I definitely followed suit with gary early on i, I think gary right off the bat when they're at their their height yeah i i think he was the first person i heard with clear conviction that he he believed that uh it was not in the best interest of a social network to do that yeah so someone that's invested in every major social network i kind of trusted in, right in here i that. mean definitely it, it, there's still like a seed of something interesting there absolutely you know yeah um and and it's it's interesting insofar as it's a fairly unique proposition to the internet at least to do at scale um something i think about a lot is you know there's some saying like you know if you want to know where to invest look at an industry that hasn't been disrupted by the internet yet and then you know 
assume that it will be or something. You know, I'm paraphrasing a quote from someone I don't know <laughs> who it is. The worst quote ever. Look for the fax um, machines. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so something I think about a lot is whether, you know, these sorts of ideas or companies, you know, a lot of the very successful ones are essentially taking things that we do offline and that humans have always done and somehow, you know, enhancing or in some cases really just a one for one, but something happening on the internet, like a one for one would be, you know, trading a phone call for a VoIP call or something like there's not really a lot of new functionality, but it's over the internet. Um, but then, you know, now allowing for multiple people to talk. Okay. So it's like a conference call now allowing for video. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, well I couldn't do that with my phone. Right. So there's like these like steps, um, but then I also think about things that only the internet can do, like blockchain, for instance, you know, um, and there's something about at scale anonymous networks that seems like something that would be really hard to do offline. Like everyone comes to the town square with a mask and a voice changer and that that seems very hard to do. Well, we, we, we so there's a couple interesting things there. It's like the the judgment of of an idea right we if we take maslow's hierarchy of needs and then yeah. we we push the sausage through um the judgment of of a product and or service you're you're competing always off of it being either cheaper better in some qualitative aspect or faster right you yeah there's only those three things that you compete off of i i think the the concept around identity as it relates to product is a fascinating topic because we are entering into an age where, you know, with virtual reality and augmented reality, identity as a, you know, and also for crypt cryptocurrency, all of these things converge to open up the question of like, who's the real you and how do you want to be rep represented? Yeah. When you, when there is a possibility of in our lifetime where people choose to live most of their lives in a digital format or yeah. a digital consciousness more than or some form or of digitally more of a enhanced cyber, yeah, somehow, right? More of a cyber, like that's your primary identity yeah. versus a physical interaction, like and, us sitting and isn't here. Isn't it like, already? That's coming, right? I mean, think about it. On any given day, I am having more uh, virtual conversations than real conversations, whether it be through Slack, email, text message, uh, you know, e even a, again, like a, a phone call, I would still call it virtual interaction. In other words, now we think of it as sort of being a, an offline interaction, but you know it, that is a relatively new technology as far as humankind is concerned, um, as opposed as opposed to this, as opposed to in person, just sitting down and, and talking. And even this is weird because we have microphones in front of our mouths, um, and so we're already on this path. It seems like there's just new ways to do it. Are you like a big Apple? person like did you watch wwdc or are you like into intel that i watch all of them i, I watch f8 and io and yeah WWDC yeah because yeah. i do feel like those are barometers for where the right. it's going there's a lot of toys that they lay out on the table and it's up to you to decide which ones are the shiny ones and have you seen any of these um ones. these demos on twitter of ar kit absolutely um, yeah and so for those that don't know this is basically uh apple announced um just this week that they now have a framework that's open to developers for creating augmented reality applications. And so something that used to be really, really, really hard and expensive and resource 
uh, heavy uh, in every sense of the word, you know, money, but also expertise to build. They're basically giving you on a silver platter um, that gets you, you know, 80, 85% of the way. And, and you're, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting of an AR type thing, even like Pokemon Go, I mean, they ha- had to actually spend all those resources to get there. But if they had come out with that game this summer instead of last summer, it would have been way easier. And in fact, they've actually switched to ARKit instead of their proprietary system, which is like totally nuts. Um, and so it's interesting too, as far as Facebook, also a few weeks ago, basically um, releasing you know a, a, a competing platform. Um, but it, it suddenly seems like it's getting a lot more real in that as an as a developer right now, I myself could go and create an augmented reality. Um, you know, experience today, but just last week, there's I wouldn't have been able to do that. Absolutely, I, I I would say for all the naysayers, especially with respect to 3D content, or like to ask frivolous questions like, is it VR or AR? Or I I I look at it as there's a fundamental lack of imagination with respect to how quickly these technologies are going to be embraced and consumed across multiple modalities. So it's the browser, yes, it's your phone, yes, and it's absolutely your desktop that which you're going to be create, be able to create as well as consume. And so with, with things like ARKit with Apple, uh, I think it, it was relatively glossed over. I think for the VR community, they realized that this means that you're going to be able to create and adapt a lot of these things across hundreds of millions of phones. And so for all the market analysts that may have had initially said, oh, we're at 25 million total units of like mobile VR in addition to head-mounted displays and the high-end headsets, you know, it'll be forever till anyone's right. able to make well, something. Do you think the, the, the form factor wrong. of the screen matters? In other words, for instance, th- there's already augmented reality in our lives, right? Thinking about Snapchat filters, um, you know, that obviously are using the smartphone as the input and the output, right? So there's the camera, and then the output is is displaying on the smartphone screen. Do you think that that you know um, it's there's the cameras, there's the you know the actual sort of processing, um, which ARKit is is making you know leaps and bounds there, and then there's the last piece, which is actually where it shows up, how it displays to the user. Do you believe that there needs to be some sort of breakthrough headset for that to really be mainstream in the sense that this is a technology that someone would use maybe not every second of every day, but sort of throughout the day? Or do you think that a smartphone screen gets us far enough to really take advantage of this in a way that is not just a gimmick or like a demonstration of the technology, but but they could actually be integrated into our lives. I think the answer to that question is not a binary one. It's not yes or no. I think it's a matter of what you're trying to answer with respect to critical mass. So for me, I define critical mass as a third or a fourth of the total U.S. population and the internet penetrations, if a la uh, your most recent Mary Meeker internet deck. Yeah. Um, in terms of it being able to be successful. And successful to me is that, you know, it's integrated into your life on a regular basis and you continue to find value from it. I think, yes, a, a um, yes on one hand, there will need to be other form factors in addition to the VR headsets that, we're, that we see right now. 
Um, and no, in the sense that the phones that which we have right now, the, the, the two primary flagship phones of an I, iPhone or a Galaxy S8 or S8 Plus, uh, eventually it'll probably be just a translucent piece of OLED glass that which you can put into your glasses now. I mean, right, and, and it, sort of overlay onto the world. Right, exactly. And and I I, I think, um, yeah, where things are consumed, on one hand, yeah, those things will will help to increase a ton of user adoption and repeat usage on a daily active users day to day. But we're also see, seeing things. It's coming from above, below, and from the side. In that, in your browser now, every major tech company either launched a new browser or made their browsers compatible with WebGL and WebVR, which is a huge embrace of these languages and technologies that embrace 3D. Right? Yeah. The the the, the value of 3D content and not these little glowing flat squares where you're deciding whether or not you should buy something. Like those things will be a thing of the past and 3D based content that actually start to inform decisions where a spatial understanding of an object and or an experience will truly make the difference between whether or not you will buy it or use it is happening. And so one example would be a tent. How often are you buying an eight person tent? And what's your spatial understanding of how tall or how wide or how many? How many right, so you see the dimensions it. on Walmart.com, not you really cutting it. it. Five five photos on a on an Amazon post that are two right. D. Seeing a tent in the, a forest, like there's no frame of reference. Putting it next to your car, or putting it next to something that you know exactly yeah. how wide and how how far you can reach around it is going to make all the difference it's of really whether or not you actually click buy. You know, as far as text-based media, you know, like articles, everything we have, even smartphones, are really just still simulating paper, you know? Um, And then when you think about video content or images, it's still basically simulating a photograph or a moving photograph, but it's it's a two-dimensional object that is representing something that we experience in three dimensions in our natural biological lives. And so... This is, you know, it might be that people look back on the sort of technology timeline and they're like, man, that was a really weird couple of decades where everyone was just carrying around like a two dimensional thing. Like that was weird because 3D ends up being how we spend most of our time, which, of course, is actually much more natural. Absolutely. Um, It's funny, like, well, capture and consumption of that kind of of. Yes, the the smarter content of what we're talking about, true three dimensional well, content. The, the is, capturing is, is interesting too, here. right? Because the 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 democratization of the capture needs to happen too. And so you know you can imagine like whatever the two cameras in the back of an iPhone Seven Plus give you like some basic functionality that a single camera wouldn't. Um, but and and you can sort of imagine again that as the beginning of sort of a trajectory or spectrum that leads you towards a place where. Everyone can create that sort of content and everyone can consume that sort of content. It's funny, even like the Sky Guide app, you know, which uses the accelerometer and the gyroscope in your phone. And this has been around for a long time where, where you hold it up to the night sky and it maps a virtual map so you can see like, oh, my God, like that's Mars or, you know, that's that's some faraway star. Or that's another galaxy. Um, and what, when I use it, I'm basically I'm holding it up to the sky. I'm looking at the sky through it. It's not, it's not really called an augmented reality app, um, but but it is in the sense that I'm sort of switching off just manually between using my real eyes 
and using sort of the virtual sky on the screen and cross-referencing and be like, okay, there's a really bright object there. Oh, I see it in the virtual representation. And, they, and they've sort of mapped on top of one another. You can imagine sort of upping the ante there where if the backdrop of that app was, was the, a live video, you know, um, so you wouldn't need to sort of take the phone away and, and away again. So it's funny, I'm working on a post right now. Um, basically, I bought a, a VR headset, um, like a, a comfy, hands-free one, but the kind where you put in your phone, like not a standalone, you know, uh, and uh, I have it, I'll show it to you. And so what I did was I downloaded this app that has um, a VR camera. It means you can capture VR content right from your smartphone camera and actually view it live as you're filming in VR. So basically I put on the headset, put in the camera, and what I was looking at is the real world, but seeing it through the video camera. Like, I don't know if, if you watch um, like Louis C.K.'s stand-up or whatever, and he talks about going to see his, his daughter's ballet recital, and every, every parent is just holding up their phone, videotaping it, and they're not actually watching the live recital. They're essentially watching a video of it in real time through the smartphone screen. And so that's what I did. And I went out on the street, and I walked around New York City, and I went into a cafe, and the videos are funny, of course, because it's me wearing a VR headset out in the world. And, and, you know, it was laggy and it's not that good. But I was trying to see, like, could I go out and, and live my life but seeing only a virtual representation of it? And, and what it, the sort of takeaway that I took from this little experiment that I did was that instead of thinking of sort of AR glasses as being something that somehow needs to project a virtual element on top of your natural field of vision, like a, like a transparent lens with a little mini hologram projector in there, whatever, however I'm imagining like Magic Leap or, or HoloLens or something, I've, I've never used those. But instead, if you were actually just in what we now call VR, a completely immersive, opaque device, um, but but with a live 360 camera where you're seeing the real world with zero lag, uh, but then you can overlay digital things on top of it. Because um, that seems a lot easier to build, actually, than to somehow make a, you know, a, a transparent screen that that overlays on top of the real world. And you have to deal with, you know, like your, um, what's it called, like, like where, you know, if you hold your finger in front of your face, it's in focus, depth of field. Um, yeah. It, it is definitely a step in the right direction, I would say. I would say what's missing from that, that many of these flagship phones as well as cameras that, are, are st- that, that have um, two cameras will start to allow is, is and also the computational uh, algorithms to help manage the experiences is something that they call six DOF or six degrees of freedom. So from a flat 360 image, you're still only looking from one perspective. And so some of the other technologies that people are experimenting with right now are things like light field. So Lytro is probably the most famous light field technology company and also volumetric capture. I I invested in a company called depth kit and those guys are using point cloud data in addition to things like Lightfield and saying, hey, we can actually give someone not only um, the experience or the recapture of a 3D object, but also give them the fidelity and the freedom once they're consuming this to move around it. So 
when a camera captures an object or a person or a scene, it's capturing all the light from just one perspective in the room. So theoretically, it's extremely difficult to capture all other permutations like the yeah, infinite I mean, permutations super, in a space. Right. But what these computer algorithms and these GPUs are now helping us able to do is pushing us to a point where not only can you capture just the first person live stream or 360 like pretty immersive experience of Paul walking to the coffee shop. In other shop, words, now you could be someone other than Paul in the coffee shop. You got it. I could teleport right into the cashier's head. And Imagine say, watching like, a movie hey, that up, way. You know, um, And it's it, that is a whole different challenge because the whole point of filming a movie for instance is that there's a single point of view right a director if, a producer if has you were to get out of that of view you be. would see the lighting rigs and the microphones and you know maybe maybe an animated movie like you could be in a pixar movie but you could be anywhere in the scene because those are actually simulated 3d environments where you could move the camera or the lighting because they're virtual cameras right and directors know? and producers now for all the things that they've learned in film school are now being reinvented and and deconstructed and reconstructed because there are no rules. Yeah. You have a role now for uh, a perspective that you previously never had before. Uh, uh, from a camera's perspective, you have to have a reason for the camera to be there if you're not in the first-person view now. And so there are tools and solutions, like one of our portfolio companies, Mindshow, for example, allows for you to be a one-man or one-woman movie studio. You can teleport into a character. Instead of taking your kids to go see... Frozen, they can be Elsa or Anna. You can teleport into Anna, puppeteer her, and then press play, and you've basically and done scene. You've done yeah. one, and you can move the camera oh, I around. See. And now you then you play a second character, and you play a third character, and you, you got you it. Create the, the experience. what what takes maybe fifty people touching a, a particular wow. object. One person can do now. That's what's the name of the company? Mind Show. Wow, you gotta check them out. That's really cool. They, they're they're going to crush. I mean. Basically, imagine every single possible uh, valuable IP holder. Name your favorite comic book character. Name your favorite uh, cartoon. It's so much or, more ported in. Yeah, and like like interactive. You know, it's not just witnessing art. It's just it's creating. You know, it's like playing make believe, but in like the coolest way ever. Sky's the limit. I mean, you you look at these three D assets, and right now it's like. We, we, we listen to the Comey hearing or we listen and watch game three of the Warriors Cavs series and we memify it and it's all being done in real yeah. time. The next evolution of memefication of these real time experiences is to will sort be, of create your own cut or whatever. You got it. You'll be remixing and not to mention we'll, it'll start to bleed into places where you're like, we're, we're actually going to have to start to talk about more and more fake news because who will know whether or not you puppeteering a photorealistic version of Comey on the stand right. is the real thing. And and his voice is recreated perfectly, but it's saying your script. That and, All of that technology exists today yeah. within software programs that have 95% accuracy of changing my voice. Yeah. All of that is, is here and... But just not evenly distributed. Right? So, coming back to this moment in June 2017 for a second, when you were looking at investments, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, a lot of the stuff we're talking about seems inevitable, but the time scale seems like really variable, right? And so, when you're thinking about companies that you want to invest in, do you have some rough idea of when you want those tides to rise? Like, is it sort of like, look, I know that in general, AR is going to become important for humankind 
at some point. And so any company that is doing something good there that has a real chance of participating in that, I'm going to invest in that company now. Or, or is sort of proximity to those sort of leaps like important? I am completely obsessed with consuming information like a black hole with respect to market timing. The number one reason why a company succeeds is market timing. So when you look at an S-curve for technological waves over the last few hundred years, much of it is, uh, we were talking before the microphones even went on, like there's a ton of false positives. Yeah. If you happen to create a mobile app uh, the right place at the right time prior to your contemporaries in 2010 and you just happen to, to embrace a, an iPhone 3G or 3GS, like you had a higher propensity at, at being successful at selling your fart app for a dollar or tap tap revenge or urban spoon or whatever else was almost preloaded, right? Like, and so when we look at all these technologies, like you're thinking about the convergence of it. You're looking at all of the other market pressures of what would drive it. So for virtual reality for and augmented reality, for example, I look at subsidies from flagship phone manufacturers. Sure. How much will AT&T and Verizon subsidize these things? How quickly are, are the costs of GPUs being driven down uh, and, and these graphics cards that are being made by NVIDIA See, and if Intel? If I can stop you for a second, those seem like two, and I know they are two different examples, but they seem, they seem different. So in other words, Looking at things like Moore's Law or these sorts of ideas about where the technology could go and what the implications are for what could be built and, and how it drives down costs, whatever, that seems like something um, somehow that's unattached to any one particular company or one particular investment or whatever. As opposed to, let's say, the, the other example you gave where you know Samsung is is paying subsidies to VR companies because they're trying to push it. Like To me, the latter one... Sounds like that usually is happening close to when the thing might actually hit. Of course, those companies make pushes in areas that never hit. So, I mean, that's a possibility. But it, would you agree that if that, if that sort of activity is already happening, you're, you're pretty close as opposed to, you know, you could look at something like Moore's Law and make predictions about something 10 years out if you really trust the, the law. And to me, I mean, that's that's the job of the VC is to is to think about these things is is to think about all quantitative and qualitative aspects aspects of these industries and sectors, and become an expert at it. So if if I have an idea of how healthy and how big this market is, and and how quickly people will embrace it, I think that gives you a much better indicator of whether or not that particular sector is going to be successful. Right. Well, like I think about apps. So I started developing apps even pre-Maz in 2009. Um, the App Store was created in 2008. So I was among sort of the first class of people to do it. And at the time, the most popular apps were, you know, it looks like I'm drinking a beer or, uh-huh. you know. The lightsaber app. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and those apps were cool. And those people made a lot of money. And now that seems much, much easier than what I'm doing. Uh, but, you know, we... We didn't know, but we had a fairly strong feeling that apps were going to be important. Um, by the time we went to raise our first like significant, you know, like our, a seed round, like post friends and family, we started having those conversations 
maybe in late 2011 and ended up closing uh, in, in the fall of 2012. And even then, we were convincing a lot of people that apps were going to be important. And that was only five years ago. And so now it seems like totally stupid like that that ever could have been a thing. And, and I feel like investing in apps is like an uncool thing for a VC to do today because it's so obvious and it's like passe. Um, but it seems like, you know, th- that, that happens quick. Like there's this underlying technology. Some people, you know, recognize that it might be important. It might not be. It's very unobvious. And then almost seemingly overnight, it's incredibly obvious to the point where you misremember how unobvious it was. Absolutely. There's something called the Adama law. What's that? The Adama law is basically we as human beings have an incredible tendency to underestimate the long-term impact of technologies and greatly overestimate its short-term impact sometimes. And so they're like, oh, it's going to change everything. And yeah. Um, and sometimes it doesn't really come that way. And so if we're, if we're talking about a post app era, or if we take, take into account some of the statistics of what the average person uses less than seven apps, users themselves, now that we're at almost 95% smartphone penetration in the States, right? You know, what percentage of them download a new app? You know, it's once every month and a half or so it's hard to break. It's an error on the other side of it. Everyone uses apps so much so that no one uses new apps. Thus, now there's a gold rush to many of these other changes within technology. So if if you want to put food on the table as a founder and you want to say, what is the next wave? You're calculating opportunity cost to say, do I invest a lot of time in learning Unreal and Unity and building VR applications or AR applications? Or do I start learning about Alexa and Google Home and like learning about how voice will be in every connected autonomous driving car? Or do I also start to think about, well, actually to keep them accountable, let me build something that's actually powered by cryptocurrency in order to make sure. Right, like, like how these far are all out do you want considerations? Do you want to go? Right, and or or even like the consumption of of dumb data or, or data that. Uh, the pass the passive sources of data that are already being collected off of wearables or other biometrics that we already have on a lot of Apple watches or Fitbits yeah. or whatever. There are a ton of different areas that which these disparate data sets are now being collected and reform formulated into to other useful so and interesting you talk areas. To founders, because what you're saying is, if you're a founder, if you if you wanted to go start a company today, right? Like, where where do you sort of place yourself, and and how far along should the market be, knowing that you sort of need to intersect with it at those right moments? So on the investor side, like. I know, again, I'm not an investor, but I still have a lot of people reach out to me with startup ideas. And most of them are nothing relating to what you're talking about. Most of it is like, I'm going to create an app that makes it easier for, you know, your dry cleaning or whatever, which totally could be a a good idea and like and could solve a real problem and whatever. But it's nothing as ambitious. And so do you find yourself having to weed out a lot of those sort of ideas or do you still think there's merit in those sorts of ideas like like thousand percent i mean it's uh in an age of you know entrepreneurship or like really a desire where where we are no longer looking to the 
Kobe Bryant's Arnold Schwarzenegger's or or uh, I don't know Joey Fatone maybe from Friends or like we're not we're no longer looking at celebrities as our heroes we're we're looking at people like Evan Spiegel we're looking at uh, Mark Zuckerberg we're looking at Sheryl Sandberg as our our representatives to be like that's who I want to be like I, I would say yeah there's there's a ton of irrational exuberance around just throwing any any little thing against the wall and saying hey this should be venture backed. And so venture as, as a business, I think there is a lot of dissonance between founders that say, hey, I want to raise venture capital because that's what I was told that I need to do in order to make it. I saw it on Shark Tank. And the reality is, unless a founder and a company, whatever product or service is willing to grow very, very big and very, very fast, venture is probably not the right financing thing for them. And so, yeah, absolutely. We, we meet a ton of founders that may have a great idea. And we call them, some VCs use the term lifestyle business as derogatory and some just use it matter of factly. But if you can build a five or 10 or 50 million or you know $20 million business off of not raising a single cent, Gary is one of the first people to look you in the face and be like, then do it, do it. Don't don't take right. someone why else's even, money. Why, yeah, why, why would you but sell part of your company? But it's interesting because I find that VC and tech seem to go hand in hand. Like, it's, and I think part of the reason is okay. Let's say I want to go open a pizzeria. I'm not going to go to a VC. I mean, unless I'm trying to open some large scale chain or whatever. Yeah, you're going to go right? to Chase. I just want to open Bank right, of America exactly. Or whoever, yeah. But if I want to start Maz, Chase or Bank of America is not going to give me a loan, right? So there's, in other words. It, non-tech, non-Facebook scale businesses are started all the time in the United States uh, that are, you know, I'm opening a store or um, I'm starting a new practice because I'm a physical therapist or whatever. And there are ways to finance those things. And as there, a lot of them sure are self-funded, um, but a lot of them take outside capital structured in one way or another. But that those sorts of capitals seem unavailable to tech founders. Um, and so do you think that that's just a symptom of tech being, quote unquote, new and scary to traditional banks and that as time goes on, these sorts of businesses will become normal enough that normal types of small business funding will become available to them? Or are tech companies sort of forever trapped in this Either you do it essentially with no money, or you you try to you know fit your square peg into a round VC hole. I I already think it's happening, and and I think ultimately it goes back to the to the the point around value creation. If a founder is looking to create value in the world, and he or she can figure out ways to continue to scale that, you will find some financing way. So if it's a salad joint like Sweetgreen. Right. If it's a yoga class, if it's a you know a, a men or women's lifestyle, uh, next generation Lululemon like outdoor voices like these consumer products like are now being seen as as some of the best and and most interesting investments and and we may be seeing from some a of, VC perspective yeah yeah and but, there's VCs that are focused solely on those things but I'm, and, and I'm basically maybe be I'm asking actually the inverse of that so it's not that non-tech businesses being VC funded it's tech businesses that are not VC model like where what should those people do is is there like because in my experience there's no really good reliable source of capital that's not VC for 
technology or software based businesses? If it's a quality business that continues to provide value from a lot of people, I think you can also you can you can go to a bank and raise debt. Now, as of this past year, there's equity crowdfunding, um, right. which hasn't, hasn't right. been it's a, a con- huge success, no, right? If, like it was maybe a tenth, if not like five yeah. percent of what people had expected. Yes, you know, right. jobs title three, like yeah. thought that, that that was going to do, or you can do an ICO, or you can go straight up and do a friends and family round. Like those are the four other places or that you can go. Right, right. Like crowdfunding, just straight, yeah, up, yeah, just straight right. up, crowdfunding, not equity right? crowdfunding, right? Exactly, but. like straight up, like just yeah. asking for for dollars. Yeah, you're right. There are options, but it is, I do think it's interesting that is. Eventually, software is, software isn't <laughs> going to be new anymore. Like software, starting a software company is like opening a local pizzeria; it's just commonplace. But it seems like financial infrastructure isn't really set up for that yet. I don't know. I I, I tend to disagree, just because I I think for the ideas that which continue to add a lot of value, I think there one of these financing models will, will be available to them. I think if we're talking about apps, for example, where you know there's there's it seems like there's a dime a dozen in terms of a, a, another food app or yeah, sure. what, whatever, right? The Uber of socks. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I, I I think um, you'll quickly see that the the early signals of what allows for them to raise or not raise will be more and more evident. Which is why if, if I was a founder. And I was out there thinking about what what is the next wave or next opportunity. I, I probably wouldn't target a red ocean, something that's completely oversaturated, and you, you're going to have to kill you know a thousand people just to take you know the first glimpse or shot. You go you'd, into more open waters. You'd go to a blue ocean, and a blue ocean to me are are things like VR, AR, voice, autonomous vehicles, computer vision, blockchain. So, not to, I don't disagree necessarily, but all those things you just named seem like obvious blue water options. So, but you have no idea how quickly or how pervasive or, or what part will actually take off in terms of, because it's, aren't those crowded spaces because they are well known, not red water. So like, fine, creating an Uber for socks, it's way too competitive and the market's saturated and not worth your energy. Now everyone knows VR is big, so you should invest in VR. Except everyone knows that everyone knows that, so everyone's doing or that. Or should you? I mean, that's right. The thing. Well, that's what I'm saying. Or is there some third option which is non-obvious to the point where we may not even be able to name what it is? Because is think- that really where you should be investing your time and energy? Well, you have to think about like for that tech adoption curve, right? For each and every one of those themes and technologies, we also have to think about. How pervasive is the infrastructure layer? So the infrastructure layer in terms of actual distribution, like should you start a VR company today? I would probably say yes, but there's only been seven companies that have made more than a million dollars so far off of the App Store. Right. That's frightening. Yeah. So you should leverage your entire family's mortgage and also call a bunch of other crazy people to join you and be locked into a VR thing because I'm telling you that the market is coming. Is it? I mean, the same with mobile, right? It was the year of mobile, 2008, 2009, it's the year of mobile. And it wasn't until a little bit later that you started to see significant and solid and repeatable returns. And so 
I, I, I don't think they're well, there's only as a few obvious winners in I, any category. I wouldn't say they're as obvious. No, those categories words, as obvious. Like people will say, I think the biggest question is this: is that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when your product and/or service actually has the greatest opportunity to create the most amount of value. And yes. that's the really, really difficult words, part. If you start a VR company today, let's say, you're, there's plenty of time to sort of hit whenever that is. But you also know going into it that you're going to have crazy competition when that time comes because so many people are starting VR-related companies now aiming to hit X number of years in the future. Right, and a fa- it's Im- imperative that a founder have a perspective as to, okay, so why'd you pick B2C instead of B2B? Okay, you built a peripheral that attaches to a phone. You you picked a feature that easily allows for you to capture more 3D content, an app that's dedicated to that. Each of those questions, like when you start a product, it's not necessarily, the best founders aren't just thinking about, hey, that's a novel and interesting idea. It's most, most of the best ideas aren't ideas that are novel. The best ideas are the ones that get that realize that it's 99% perspiration and execution. And they realize where they sit with with respect to where the rest of the market is and have a clear understanding as to, this is my hypothesis. I'm leveraging everything to say, now is the time to build a B2C VR application or a VR social experience or a shopping experience versus a B2C one, you know, a B2B one or B2C one. Right. And, and you have a perspective as to like why and what's driving that. But for the ones that say, hey, this is new and interesting and novel and it's the blue ocean, you're like, yeah, that's like table stakes. Now tell me the hundred other data points of right. why you believe right. it should be what it is. So it's almost like, tell period. me if, if this works with your, your blue and, and red ocean. The red ocean is competitive present tense. Blue ocean is competitive future tense. You know that going in. Yeah. But you're deferring the sort of moment of truth. Yeah. Into the future. Right. And and it's also sh- mid and short term and long term alignment of like, what do you become when you grow up? Because oftentimes, like we understand as early stage investors that oftentimes the product and service that which you create in the beginning, oftentimes oh, isn't the same absolutely. thing at the end. Absolutely. But having but but the best founders are also thinking that way. They're thinking like poker players where it's like if that person is 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 uh, checking versus raising versus folding that they know cognitively what the pot odds are for the future yes. of, of what happens in that yes. realm. If Google does not pay off on actually launching six new Tango and Daydream enabled headsets, then what happens? Right. If Facebook actually yes. you know reneges on saying we're not investing 150 million dollars in content, then what happens? Like platform dependence and like where you go right. and how you go about it, like. Founders are, are the ones that are basically trying to read the tea leaves. Right. And we're the ones that are also trying to, to make sure that, hey, watch out, this car's about to hit right, you. Right, that shouldn't completely it. blindside you when, yes. when those things happen. You should be, at least say, have, a, have a backup plan and, and strategic sessions to say, hey, our entire business is built on Snapchat right now. Right, right. What's but your overall goalpost might be the same, but you recognize that the road getting there is almost definitely not going to be the one that you set out. Right. And ultimately, it's still about value creation. So that value can look, yes, like for an end user, but it also can look in a world where Fanga, right? Like each and every one of these companies seems to have a leg up in all these other areas. If you can build a data set that is truly differentiated and they cannot find in other places, that's going to be extremely valuable to them. Like Karmara 
Brooklyn-based founders just raised $6.5 million this past week. Cool. They are allowing for people to say, hey, you know what? We built a better Google Maps. Like, what do you mean you built a better one? Like, well, actually, Google Maps is pretty damn stale. Right. If you want to know what happens on 26th or whatever. multiple Maps it's really tough. related early stage companies. Because maps are really, really hard. Right. And so for them to be able to say, we're going to capture an accessible API for people to access on a regular basis at an affordable cost by attaching these cameras off of service delivery and so vehicles. so they've decided to go B2B instead of trying to launch a Google Maps competitor. You got it. I mean, that that data, unstale map-based data on a day-to-day yeah. based off of weather See, that's and so traffic interesting patterns. Too because like, I find that incredible. there is a temptation for founders to want to find a B2C application for a technology or, or an insight because somehow that's where the glory is or something. I've been guilty of this. We have a B2B company, but throughout the years I've tried to launch B2C companies. We met actually because I was I was telling you about links and and um, and it's hard for some reason. B2B, I feel like there's less of the glory, if that makes any sense, or the perceived glory. And and so for instance, it might be like, man, like Google Maps is stale. I know what we'll do. We'll create a better Google Maps. But Oftentimes at that moment, they're not thinking about how insanely hard it would be to actually market and compete to the consumer base of the world against Google Maps. So it sounds like instead they took a very smart route, no pun intended, which is uh, using the same sort of technological insights, but finding a way where the, the, there was an opening on the market side. Um, and I think that takes a lot of discipline and also a lot of, um, like uh, honesty with yourself, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Visual based information is there's a reason why every major tech company is now moving more and more towards visual mediums because written ones was part of the first and second and third waves. Like we're now moving into an era where the data sets that will be collected will, will you know, a billion photos have, taken a have day. Have you ever like, seen it's, it's like incredible. a 12-year-old use Snapchat? Oh, yeah. It's out of control. They use it's it inhuman. totally different than I use it. Inhuman. They are sending and receiving, you know, dozens of photos every minute. And to the same people, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The same way that like you might look at a text thread of mine. Yeah. That I might send like, you know, t- there might be 20 back and forths in a minute. Yeah. Except they're all photos. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's a good segue actually with with this company that you just mentioned, the New York tech scene. We are uh, part of this, you know, sort of second class citizen community uh, <laughs> in the eyes of our West Coast cousins. Um, we're like the Care Bear cousins, okay. you know? And I have a lot of New York tech pride, and I know you do too. And I feel like there was a lot of hype is maybe the wrong word, but sort of rightful excitement about the New York scene. Um, Again, sort of as I know we were coming up 2010, 11, 12, maybe 13. And now I feel like I just don't hear about it as much. It seems like there's, there's not a lot of the really big things coming out of New York um, in the same way as, you know, you sort of had Tumblr and Etsy and and some of these really big New York founded companies. That's not to say there aren't any, of course, um, but I still very much believe in New York as, as a tech hub. Maybe it's just that we've matured and so it's 
less noteworthy when there are breakthroughs. But I know this is an area you're passionate about. Um, so maybe, you know, if you just want to say a few words about your take on the New York tech scene and where you think it sort of fits into the larger global ecosystem as it relates to tech and startups. Absolutely. New York is an incredible place to be if you want to be a founder and or investor. I would say, yes, there are inc an incredible amount of folks also on the West Coast. But I think the reason why we may not have seen as many break breakthrough I, you know IPOs over the last few years is uh, more of a factor of of the market of of founders themselves wanting to stay private longer and realizing that they have an even higher upside by raising at a 50 billion dollar valuation and so I think actually in the next few months, you're going to see a lot more of New York. I, I would say even three to five years ago, there was contention about who was second place. Mm. Now, even just in the last couple of years, nobody thinks of any other city. It's New York. Right. And for us, what's coming around the bend, we're going to see Blue Apron. Ta-da. We're going to see WeWork. Ta-da. We're going to see <laughs> Vice. Ta-da. You're going to see a bunch of things that were catalyzed in in our caves to build our diamonds off of industries and things that are super unfamiliar to that of San Francisco. So you're going to see the pressures of finance and fashion and even manufacturing come back. And so I, I'm extremely excited for even just the hotbeds of uh, new homes for startups. So you have the new lab uh, in Brooklyn. You also have Industry City, you know, 18 you know million square feet where you know, large corporations to smaller corporations are going. And we have the VRAR bid by our municipal government that will sponsor a location that's dedicated to the innovation and the funding of those types of companies. Like yep. that's, I can name like half a dozen other ones, but it's all happening here. And and what's interesting is that if, if uh, you know, Europe as, as, as a collective, if the EU and, and the UK are, are representative of some of our, our, next group of, of wonderful founders and wonderful innovations, they oftentimes also see New York as the beachhead to get into the U.S. market. And so I'm excited for what's happening in New York. I think we're going to see a diaspora as well as the uh, the waterfall effect of people that, kings and queens that get crowned from those exits. Yeah. And that said, hey, you and know what? Then start their own thing or become VCs or you got whatever. It. And the market here in New York is going to get even better. We're going to see companies that are funded because not in you know not in spite of of being in New York because oftentimes I would say for for a lot of the companies that you know are trying to build businesses m much of the client base is in New York and so you can I'm I'm also a huge believer in starting anywhere you know don't yeah, forget yeah. Chattanooga and Austin and Seattle and LA and Toronto and Montreal like or even Taipei or London you know you can start in those places, but statistically, if you're doing venture capital, you eventually still have to come through New York or San Francisco. Yeah. And I think what you said about there being customers here, the way I always think about the sort of key differentiator, the key advantage that I believe New York has is that in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you say, what is the leading industry? It's tech. And, and here... Tech is just one of many industries, and and the best tech, tech companies that are started in New York serve those industries, and so even you know those those potential IPOs that, that you were talking about, those feel like New Yorky 
startups, like a real estate startup, a gritty media company, you know, um, uh, cooking and, and, you know, and a culinary based company. Like those feel like New York things. Those, those are like New Yorker ideas and New Yorker passions. And so it makes sense that those companies come like, and are born sort of of the, the New York ethos, you know? I, I still think comp- like a company like Foursquare is such an indicative company for New York. Yeah. We were the hot, hot, hotness on the cover of everything on the face of the planet. And we also hit some bumps. But then rising like a phoenix out of the ashes, look where Foursquare is now. Right. With a real business making hundreds of millions of dollars, adding real value. And I think that's that's the story of New Yorkers. We find a way to grind it out. We figure it out. We right. It's not like, vaporware. It's not just lip service. We're not going to lie down and say like, okay, if the market has shifted, we're going to shift. Right. And I think that sort of resilience amount amongst the founders here in the founder community is is great because when you do go to a cocktail party or a dinner party and you're you're not getting false positives like I'm hustling, I'm crushing it, I'm doing I just raised another round, but I've launched these new features. Great, blah 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 noise. But in New York, you'll sit next to a doctor or a lawyer or someone that works at a right, retail or a store. Banker or someone at FIT yeah. or right. Like And if you can't explain and distill it down in a sentence of what you make or what you do in the world, yeah. they're like, Cool, I'm gonna go get another right. drink. Like, like, I don't know about you, but <laughs> most of my friends in my personal life are not in tech. Yeah. And it keeps you honest. Yeah. Because if you if you're talking about some other new feature, AR kit, they're like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. But they're gonna hate this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Sean, I want to thank you so much for stopping by the Maz Studio. Of course. Um, congratulations again on fatherhood. Maybe I'll have you back on and we'll talk about I feel like there's a whole weird overlap, a sort of cultural phenomenon of people in tech, in VC that are around our age, that are having kids and balancing work and parenthood. And, and it's another like New York phenomenon. That's another topic for another time. It's a ripe discussion to have. It is indeed, my friend. Um, well, thanks again. Awesome. See you guys. making thousands of calculations on the spot. Where did it come from? Like how quickly did it come in? How much information was there? What do we know from their LinkedIn, their AngelList, their Crunchbase, have they raised before in the past? Uh, How quickly is this company growing? Have I heard about this company involuntarily from someone else in the past? Is it a hot industry? Is it a cold industry? Is it an industry that is gaining traction or previously had traction in the past? Are these founders the types of founders that have built this type of company in the past? Like all of those things, like you're building a qualitative and quantitative analysis of whether or not this should lead to the next five minute conversation.